there is a sense in which one way or the other, what we end up doing is associating longing with some kind of painful interaction with another human being. Like, mm-hmm. it, like it's not okay for me to want this. I'm wrong for wanting this. All the number of different messages that we get. But that neurally, from a neurobiological standpoint, what I do is I splice together my sense of longing with my sense of shame. But there's something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. And so in order to avoid the shame... I practice not paying attention to my longings. Now, the thing is, this doesn't keep my longings from coming to the surface. Just because I don't know what they are does not mean that they don't know me. Does not mean that they're not looking for a way to get expressed. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. We are here today to continue a great conversation that we started on our last podcast with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt is the author of the brand new book called The Soul of Desire. And uh, hopefully you have been able to listen or view our last podcast with Kurt. And we have uh, invited him to come back again to continue this conversation. Of course, we're here with the host of the Men of, of the Faithful and True podcast, Dr. Greg Miller. And I'm Randy Everett, your co-host. Kurt, welcome back to the show. Randy and Greg, thanks so much. It's great to be back. Well, again, thanks for taking time. And as I mentioned last time, one of the... Um, things that you reference is the kind of the chaos around sexual desire and that is so applicable to um, our work the the ministry that we do of working with men specifically who have been struggling with some sort of experience of chaos and confusion in their sexual choices and so I want to just talk a little bit about what does it mean to embrace my desires understand my desires and live within the framework of a, a healthy, redemptive sexual experience. Well, I think, uh, you know, Greg, as we talked about the last time, I think one of the first things to recognize is that uh, in many respects, the deepest form of longing is, you know, begins at birth, and we have this longing to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure, and those are four words we, we could use other words we could use more words fewer words mm-hmm. but what those words collectively represent are really what we're looking for and we represent those longings of those words in all kinds of ways sexuality being one of them sexuality being one that necessarily represents one of the most vulnerable ways in which we express our humanity and it also represents uh, this notion of our longing to connect with someone else. I can uh, really love to express my, uh, my joy in life by going for a long run. I don't need to have anybody else with me in order for me to go for a long run. I don't need to have anybody else with me in order for me to cook up you know, my favorite pasta dish. Mm-hmm. I, I, there are certain things that we can do that are expressing our longing desires or, that don't require other people. But this desire is unique in that we long for the presence of others. We long for the other to want us. We long to be wanted. We long to be wantable. And there are therefore, there's so much of, uh, not not to mention what we would consider to be the 
deep human need, whether we're aware of it or not, the deep human need to make things, the deep human need to co-create, the deep human need to be able, and, and, and that, that notion of creativity in places of vulnerability are things that make it real. We, we can't escape from this. And so that we have such vulnerability that, the, and, and the fragility of our sexuality, along with the notion that it leads ultimately human beings, it leads to the kind of creation the nature of which is unlike anything else. Like right. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we have software. I'm <laughs> glad we have indoor plumbing, but like none of that matches what it means to make a baby, to, right. to make a new human being. And so the amount of power and the level of fragility that are all wrapped in one thing, I think is a, for, for me anyway, represents the nature of my soul. And how, therefore, why there's such a fine line between my desire and my devouring of those things that are necessarily items of beauty and goodness, uh, but that otherwise I can, um, you know, trample at a moment's notice. Well, and one of the things that specifically in the area of sexuality, we try to distinguish between desiring a behavior and desiring an experience. And for a lot of the men with whom we work, they have associated a behavior with some sort of experience of a legitimate need. Um, and so therefore, we understand the greater desire that is represented in the behavior, but the behavior itself in this experience is creating chaos. It's almost a misrepresentation of the ultimate desire. You know, I think, I, as, as, I, as I mentioned briefly in the book, I, I think it's really striking to me that, uh, you know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and who believe the anthropology of the Bible, who believe, you know, we were made in a certain way and for certain purposes and so forth, like, you, you got to kind of, like, give it, you got to hand it to God that, like, you know, the whole notion of orgasm, mm -hmm. right? Like, when it's over, it's over. Like you, you can't, and, and like men of a certain age, like mine, you can't like have it again, like in three minutes. And I'm reminded of God's commentary at the end of Genesis three into Genesis four, their commentary that it's not going to be okay for the woman and the man to remain in the garden because they eat of the tree of life. You know, other things are going to happen. There is this sense in which the sexual act itself is self-limiting. And to your point, there is an act that is limited. It comes to an end, but it is pointing to, it is directing us to that which it represents. And to the degree that I am not connected in a secure attachment, to the degree that I'm not seen, soothed, safe, secure, relationally in other deeper ways, will mean necessarily that I will need to use more and more of an embodied experience more and more frequently in order to maintain. So I'm going to have to have a longer behavior more frequently in order to make up for what's not developing within me in terms of my own internal relational collateral and capital. That often is the case. So we find that when we are acting in ways that we otherwise are going to be disintegrating, devouring, 
in many respects, we are still working to make up for the relational capital that we've just never received. Well, and even as you were speaking, the kind of the idea that I had is it's a replacement strategy that I'm hoping that this sexual experience, whatever it may be, can replace ultimately what I'm missing. Um, And one of the ways that we talk about addiction is the scripture says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mm -hmm. Addiction is the attempt to be comforted without having to mourn. And so Mm -hmm. it's that grief piece of this is what I have missed, and this will never be a replacement or a substitute for what it is that I have missed. You know, I, I, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We talked in the last episode about this notion that we are people of grief. And that part of grief also, it, it, part of it is sadness, part of it is anger, part of it is, but, but it, it is, it includes naming those things and sitting with those things in the presence of others who are sitting with them with you. And I want to suggest to our audience that it is the process, not just of like, oh, Kurt has to contend with his grief. Yeah, like, I got to go deal with my grief. This, that, that's not untrue. But to the degree that I am confronting my grief in your presence categorically changes the game of the nature of my experience of my grief. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why we talk about beauty in this book as much as we do is because we think about beauty, we think about sex, we think about it in, in these terms. It's, it's not hard to imagine beauty in the standard ways. We think about a Monet, we think about the Grand Canyon. We th- there are all kinds of things that are just self-evidently beautiful. We don't imagine crucifixion in those terms. We don't imagine our brokenness in those terms. We don't imagine the trauma of my life in those terms. But the reading of the gospel is a story of a God who is looking into the trauma of the world and see, look, looking for the emerging beauty in the very last spaces that any of us would imagine this happening. And so to your point about addiction, addiction is often a way for me to avoid my grief as opposed to looking right at it in the presence of others because it is in the looking upon our crucified Lord, that we get to Easter. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way to get to Easter except through Good Friday. And my story of my collective Good Friday is such that it's just way too brutal to look at. And so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that, to dissociate from that. And I will use every addiction available to me to pull it off. Because the moment I give that up, I'm way too afraid that I'm going to find myself like John and Mary at the foot of the cross with Jesus saying, Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother, while they're looking at him. And this is, I mean, like the work that you guys are doing, what, like one of the, is so crucial because it's like you're inviting guys to come be with you all standing around the cross mm-hmm. because you're looking for Easter that's coming. Not because this is all that remains, but for a very different reason. 
And part of that beauty is, and we stand with you in Good Friday. We, right. we stand with you in the chaos and the pain. We don't deny it. We don't minimize it. We don't rationalize it. We just and embrace the truth of that chaos and pain that you have experienced and that you have created. Kind of using your language, the ways that you have been devoured and the ways that you have devoured, mm. we can be with you in that. Um, we, we often believe as Christians that community is a good idea and it's optional. Mm-hmm. And more and more, and certainly your, your book, books allude to this and directly say it, is that community in, is not an optional thing. If you are going to live in faith, if you are going to be the embodiment and the expression of Jesus in some way, it must be in the context of community. If there's going to be grace, if there's going to be forgiveness, if there's going to be grief, if there's going to be healing, it mm-hmm. must occur in the context of community. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, uh, again, the work that you're doing highlights this and really provides a ballast and a hard deck on which people can have a real experience that teaches their mind and their brains and their bodies what their minds and their brains, their bodies are really looking for. Mm-hmm. I'm not just looking for information from you guys. Like information, you can get information anywhere you want to get it. I can't get life off the internet. I'm only going to get life where life is actually given to me, and that's coming from other people. And this whole notion where Jesus says in John's Gospel again, and they will know that you are my friends, my disciples, because of how you love one another. This sense that my, not just my life itself, but my capacity to reflect anything to the world is deeply dependent upon the connections that I'm making with the people in my community to the point where I'm doing the kind of work that you all are asking people to do that is, as Lewis writes about God, that he's easy to please and hard to satisfy. This notion that we welcome people into this group and we're not going to be satisfied with you just coming and going and getting what you need and then leaving. We want you to be part of us in order not just for you to be transformed, but in order for us also to be transformed by your presence. We mm-hmm. need that as well. Well, it's that idea that I can't be fully me out of context of being fully with you. Right. That there is some aspect of me that is not fully realized when I am living in that place of isolation, either the isolation that comes from geographically distancing myself from everyone or that isolation of becoming invisible in the crowd. Either way, that isolation is keeping me from being fully realized as the person that God created me to be. Right. Right. One of the things that is a part of Faithful and True, you know, Mark and Deb several years ago wrote the book, um, The Seven Desires. And so it constantly reminds us very much what your book does is that there are these desires that are behind and and beyond everything else that are inviting us that are are driving us that are encouraging us and to miss out on those is to miss out on the greater story of God's intention Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and I I think um, you know as we've uh, said before uh, desire is a tricky thing 
And, you know, I, uh, in, in the book, we explore, you know, these four questions in the, in the back third of the book. And one of those questions is, what do you want? These are Jesus' first words in John's gospel. What do you want? And I think it's easy for me to hear those words. And, you know, the first thing is like, well, okay, what's the right answer to this question? I, I, I want to know what the right answer is. It's so a I don't pop screw quiz. This right, exactly, right. <laughs> Maybe the safest way, though, is the, uh, the one answer that I might come up with most commonly, which is, huh, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I want. That may be a way for me to avoid the question, but it may actually be also quite honest. I don't know what I want because I've practiced either A, burying and dissociating from my longings, or recognizing that they are there, but I'm afraid to name them because of what are you going to think? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to be too much. I, and and if, I, if I name them, they're going to be wrong, whatever that has to right. do. Hey, I want to so, offer one other thing, and this is fairly common. Or I grew up in an environment where my wants and desires weren't valued. They weren't welcome. So I don't know how to value them or how to welcome them either. Right. There, there is a sense in which one way or the other, what we end up doing is associating longing with some kind of painful interaction with another human being. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's not okay for me to want this. I'm wrong for wanting this. All the number of different messages that we get. But that neurally, from a neurobiological standpoint, what I do is I splice together my sense of longing with my sense of shame. But there's something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. And so in order to avoid the shame... I practice not paying attention to my longings. Now, the thing is, this doesn't keep my longings from coming to the surface. Just because I don't know what they are does not mean that they don't know me. Mm-hmm. Does not mean that they're not looking for a way to get expressed. And before you know it, this is exactly what any and all forms of addiction are trying to do. They're trying to get a message out to me and to the world that there are legitimate longings that have been redirected in ways that are unhelpful and that are now being hijacked and becoming elements of devouring rather than of desire in the way that God has made us to desire. I think one of the reasons why we talk about beauty so much, again, is because when people actually don't know what they want, one of the exercises we give to them is we, we give them exercises of paying attention to beauty in the natural world, in the artistic world, and so forth, as a way to begin to spark their imagination to be curious. When you say that you see something that really captivates your attention, right, a particular painting, a particular, you know, walk in the woods or whatever it is, I want you to start to pay attention to, like, what do you feel and where in your body do you sense it? Because for many people, this you know, this practice of paying attention to what you want and longing and desire, it's almost as if we're having to start, even though these people are 45 years of age, in many respects, they got stuck when they were three or four Mm -hmm. or when they were 16 or 17. And we're really having to talk to kids who are very, very young, or we're talking with, you know, teenagers, all of whom are in 50 year old bodies. And this, of course, can be uncomfortable. It can be, and it can be humiliating. Like I, I, I should know. I and, and like mm-hmm. you've got all the all the burden of like, why am I talking to you in the first place? Because like I got problems. This is this is how I find myself into your office. But in the end, 
giving them beauty to practice paying attention to gives them an opportunity to awaken to the possibility that their longings can eventually become expressed in the very way that the beauty that they're seeing is being expressed. Mm -hmm. And this is often novel to people. People get surprised by this. And it also, though, necessarily means that if they do the work of paying attention to this beauty, they're necessarily going to have to do the work of walking through their grief that has shut them off from it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like... You'd like to talk with people about Easter and you give people the story of a guy who was raised from the dead and people are like, man, that, that's awesome. And then you say, yeah, but if you're going to actually experience it, you're going to have to rewind the clock back three days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's what I also hear is that you're inviting people to listen for the invitation that comes from beauty. That exactly. In in uh, in beauty, there is this invitation to something beyond us, maybe something that transcends us, and to be able to hear that invitation, and it does cause us to need to be attentive to what the beauty may be saying and inviting us to. I I valued the story where you had the guy in your office and you were encouraging him to look at the um, painting of the prodigal son. And just the challenge, and I'm very familiar with that challenge, of slowing down enough and getting vulnerable enough to see what beauty might be inviting me to. Right. Well, I think this is, this is the other thing that we often don't recognize is that, um, uh, you know, you, uh, I'm, I'm, as we're broadcasting, as we're recording right now, I'm looking out my window and I'm looking at our neighbor's oak tree that is this, I mean, it's winter time and there's no leaves left on the tree. And this tree is a sentinel. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, no car running at 50 miles an hour can compete with this tree, right? It's going to win. <laughs> the tree's going to win every time. And I, uh, you know, when you walk by this tree, you can't help but want to walk up and touch it. You want to try, like, you you can't help it. You walk by, you want to push against it because you long to, like, you want to know what your eye tells you, and that is that, like, this tree would kill you if it fell on you. You want to know that, like, my goodness, that thing is solid. Like, I, like I'm like i nothing compared to this tree. Even the beauty of that tree invites you to come closer to it. Like, you want mm-hmm. to come. To... Beauty does this. You, I, I've, I've been in a Dorsey museum in Paris where the Van Goghs are, and I'm like, you get to stand three feet from these things. And like, you're three feet and you want to get within two feet. And then you want to get, and you, then you want to touch it. And of course, that's not so good. If you're looking for yeah. attention, that's one way to get it. Right, exactly, exactly, right. But the point is that beauty calls us. It isn't just out there and says, hey, look at me from a distance. No, like we want to get, you hear about the Grand Canyon, you see the pictures, you want to go. You want to be in the canyon. And that's this thing like beauty says, come be with me. Mm-hmm. And this is what God is doing all the time. But so much of our life in our brokenness tells a very different message. The message that the serpent tells the woman in Genesis 3 is that God doesn't want you being with him. If he'd wanted you to be with him, he would have made you like him, but... He didn't really do that, which is why you need to eat the fruit, because he doesn't really want you to be like him. 
And there is this sense in which when we allow ourselves to contend with beauty, we, for the first time, sometimes have the experience that we're being called to be with. No strings attached. No price to pay. Just come, be with. Mm -hmm. Bring yourself. Be here. And... You know, we're, I, I'm, I'm so busy posturing. I'm so busy working so hard to make sure that I am worthy of your wanting me to be with you. That I, I can't imagine that you would just like, Kurt, just, just, no, just be with us. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to make sure that I'm dressed the right way and have the right degree and have the right, no, all, no, no, just, just come, just come, come and see. Yeah, it was that beautiful invitation of just come and sit. Yeah. Uh, the B, and like you said, we work so hard to try to figure out what the price of admission is and that we give ourselves to uh, that exploration and then being determined that we're going to do whatever we have to do to earn the right. And yet in that, we miss out this invitation that we find in beauty and we find in truth. And Kurt? Yeah, and I, I've, yeah. I was going to say, and that invitation stands from Greg and myself uh, to have you come anytime to be with us, uh, and we are very appreciative of your time today in joining us on the Faithful and True podcast. Again, to all of our listeners and viewers, we are trying to invite you to uh, get Kurt's new book, The Soul of Desire. It's sold wherever quality, inspirational, beautiful books are sold, and uh, we invite you to do that. And uh, so that uh, Kurt can get a little bit closer to playing more golf and, uh, and having lots of uh, quality free time on his hands. We thank you very much. We look forward to, again, having you join us in the near future. And uh, we really appreciate it. Randy and Greg, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. I look forward to sometime in the future being able to join you again. Yeah, we look forward to well, that. thank you. Thank you very much. To our listeners and our viewers, we thank you as well. Thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. We're sure that today's podcast has been beneficial to you. We hope that this coming week is going to be a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision. <laughs>